How's everybody doing? Not very good. Yeah. Uh, so there's this story about John Calvin, you know, the reformer. He was in Geneva, Switzerland, but he didn't want to be there. But then he was forced to be there. The Lord called him there, and through certain circumstances, he found himself there as the minister. And so he was trying to pursue academic pursuits like writing and things like that, but God and his providence had a different plan. And so he was there, and he was preaching. I believe it was in the book of Jeremiah. He was preaching verse by verse, and now y'all know that verse by verse preaching can take quite a while. Uh, Even the book of Philippians took us the whole summer, right? And that's just four chapters. Uh, The book of Jeremiah, it's how many chapters, Larry? A lot. Uh, (laughs) And so uh, it it turns out that uh, as they were trying to grow the church of God there in Geneva, that he got kicked out because they didn't want to hear the Bible. Uh, They didn't want to hear what it means to have a society that is led from God's word. And so John Calvin gets the boot. He was halfway through the book of Jeremiah, and some years later, they called John Calvin up. Maybe send him a letter or something. I don't know how you got in contact with people back then. They said, we want you back. John Calvin said, okay, I'll come. And so the day he arrived, he sat down and began to preach again, and he started in the chapter and the verse that he had stopped in in the book of Jeremiah. Uh, It took a couple years for him to uh, prepare for that one sermon, but there he was, and he started right from where he stopped. And so I feel kind of like that as we come into the book of Nehemiah, because we stopped before the summer began in Ezra, and now we're starting again in Nehemiah. And here we go, marching through the books of the Bible. Remember, this is a survey Bible study, and I'm so glad to be here with y'all again. Uh, I, I hope that Some of the things I'm going to be doing this year maybe will help us grow our numbers. I like all of y'all here, but I hope that more of our membership might be able to benefit from the fellowship that we have on Wednesday nights, the prayer that we're able to enter into, and then, of course, opening up God's Word together. And so I wanted to talk to y'all about, uh, it's not really a new format, but it's a new maybe mode that I'm going to be trying, and you'll see it right up there in the header of our handy-dandy handout that is very similar to the ones that we've had, Uh, but I'm going to start to be putting the points up top, the things that we're going to be marching through, and I'm going to do it rather quickly. Uh, I'm going to try to do it, say, in uh, 15 minutes. Uh, Now, if you're thinking about the book of Isaiah like I am, and I just said 15 minutes, yeah, that's going to be crazy, but we're still going to try to do it. That way we can really get this overview because remember, the purpose of this survey is so we, as the people of God here at Centennial, can feel a little more confident opening up to God's word at any place in the scriptures. Old Testament, New Testament, prophets, narrative, apocalypse like Daniel or Revelation. Anywhere we go, we might be a little more confident and that we might be able to help others be a little more confident too. And so, uh, having said that, you're still going to get the resource, you're going to get the main points now, and we're going to do it quicker so when I stop, we can then have a bit of conversation, things that maybe piqued your interest, things that you're still a little unsure of, if you just maybe heard something that I said and then moved on, 
so it'll be a quick, a little bit quicker so we can have a little bit more conversation. And I hope that might be a little more palatable as we invite others into our Bible study time after the meal. Maybe they would feel uh, a, a little less overwhelmed thinking, man, he's going through the book of Isaiah for 45 minutes. That's a little intense, you know, or something like that. However long it was, 30 minutes or something like that. So uh, keep that in mind as y'all advocate for this program. You know, the minister's supposed to advocate for Wednesday nights. I say, y'all, come on. It's not as powerful as when the membership, as when the people who are coming every Wednesday night say, hey, y'all should come on out. This is pretty cool. We've been going to it last year. We've been coming to it this year. It's great. You get some good resources out of it as well. So uh, uh, just a bit of front matter for y'all. And I'll be going back through. We'll reprint all of these, and I'll put the main points on the headers. That way you can have those main points for the ones that we've been talking about. You wouldn't have to go back and listen to the audio, but anybody who comes in can also have it as well. And it can be a good tool that you can go back to and remember, if you see that, the remember colon. And then you'll have the main points that we'll be talking about tonight, uh, even as you have all of the other information on the handy-dandy handout. Okay, where were we? We were in Nehemiah. We were in Ezra. We've kind of marched through all of the history of, uh, 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 of the scriptures in the Old Testament. So we, uh, we've seen... We really started and saw the bookends of Genesis and Revelation. That was the two ending points of uh, uh, the beginning and the end of the Bible. Then we saw Matthew because, you know, Jesus. And then we went to the Psalms because, you know, that's the prayer book of the Bible. That's God's revelation to man, but it's also man speaking to God. So it's pretty important for us to get right off the bat. And then we landed in Exodus and we've been marching through the history of God's people since then. And it's actually taken us quite a while to to go through all of the Old Testament history. But as we come to the conclusion of Nehemiah and Esther, sort of, but really Nehemiah, we've made it. This is the history that has been recorded. There could be some prophets that might find themselves a little further on. There could be some prophecies or some wisdom literature that you might argue was written a little past this history that we find ourselves in here. But we're within the 400s BC. And if you think about that, it's only a couple hundred years until Jesus is born. Uh, at, you know, AD, 1 AD. You know, we, we come to that culminating birth story of Jesus and we start there, one, going to 33, which is about when he started his ministry, thir- year 30 AD or 33. So we're, we're getting there in the history of God's people. And this is kind of the culmination where we get all of it. And now we're going to start to be plugging in the points with all the prophets, right? We'll put Amos over here. We'll put Jonah over here. We'll put all of these prophets that we then are going to come to in their respective places. But we need to finish up the history with Nehemiah. Nehemiah, uh, kind of in the time of Ezra, a little bit after they coincide with Ezra's second journey. Like I said, this was in uh, kind of the mid-400s is usually when scholars place uh, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah as the people of God have been allowed to come back. The decree has been announced. They were in exile because of their disobedience. And then God said, it has been enough. You can go back. 
God's been working for his people. They're back. The temple's rebuilt by this time. That was in Ezra, if you remember. Now we're in Nehemiah, and the city is still in shambles. That's where the story begins, all right? The temple's there, but the city is in shambles. There's no wall to defend her. And that's where we pick up this evening. Let's pray and then talk a little bit about Nehemiah. Oh, Heavenly Father, we come to you so thankful for your word. We come to you thankful for all the books of the Bible. Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit who inspired men, carried them along, and Father, created for us revelation from you that reveals your son Jesus and that reveals the salvation that we need Father, that reveals you and what you do for your people. And so, God, as we look to Nehemiah, we see some of the main points. Father, that you are working for your people, that you listen to your people, and, Lord, that you save your people. God, may we see it, and may we see it in light of Jesus Christ. Lord, may it be so in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, the book of Nehemiah, you see on your handout, this theme that God acts on behalf of his people in saving, listening, and protecting them, which leads to his own worship and glory. This is another way to talk about the main points that I want to talk about tonight that that will help us as we remember these things. You see it in the headers. We remember this as we open up to the book of Nehemiah. It will, it will uh, allow us a road, as it were, a path to walk down and to begin to start to pull out these truths that will seem so obvious once we pick them out and will be so helpful for us when we return to the book. And so, uh, as we see the theme, also see that remember portion. These are the points we're going to be talking about. Prayers are answered. God is working. That leads to reassured faith. And that leads to faithful action or holiness, sanctification, uh, right lifestyle. We see that at the end of Nehemiah. So let's start with this very obvious moment, uh, the prayers in Nehemiah. Uh, The prayers are everywhere in this book. And now prayer shows up and crops up in almost all the books of the Bible. But here it's very blatant. Uh, it's in the first person often, and, and it's like these exclamation points over and over, and you see that in our solid rock verses. If we follow the prayers through, notice with me, we'll just march through the solid rock verses. Almost all of them are prayers to God. He, Nehemiah is praying, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed. Nehemiah is speaking to God on behalf of his people. Nehemiah 2.4, so I prayed to the God of heaven. We'll come back to that one because that's an important prayer at the very beginning. Nehemiah 2.20, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And then here it comes. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Remember the Lord. All the assembly said amen. Remember for my good, O my God. Remember, O my God, uh, 6.14. All the nations were afraid because of what God did. We keep going through. Blessed be your glorious name. That's chapter 9, verses 1 through 38. You are the Lord. You alone. And then we get these remembers. Remember me, O my God. 
Verse, chapter 13, verse 14. Chapter 13, verse 22. Remember this also in my favor, O my God. Remember them, O my God. Speaking of his enemies. And then chapter 13, verse 30. The last verse. Remember me, O my God, for good. Nehemiah over and over is, is likening these things to prayer and he's, he's sending them up to God, whatever they might be. If we follow the prayers through the text and we remember that this, that this uh, book is infiltrated, as it were, by a man who is desirous to see what God will do for him, it will begin to illuminate that main theme that I was speaking of and that you see before you. God acts on behalf of of his people in saving, listening, and protecting them, which leads to his own worship. God listens, God hears, and he is acting. And so even as Nehemiah is praying, and God is answering, by the way, and you see this in the text, all of these things, if you look them up, these solid rock verses within the context, you realize that that these things are actually being answered, that God is remembering his people. And Nehemiah is is, uh, repeating this refrain. God is doing it. And that's the next point. God is working. So prayers are being answered. Nehemiah is praying. The people are praying. And now we see that God is working. And this is an important follow-up because even as the people are praying, God has already been working. God has already been setting these things up. God and his divine providence, his mysterious love, uh, all of these things are beginning to play out. And we see it even from the very beginning. Remember I was talking about the prayer of chapter 2, verse 4. If you would, hopefully y'all are there. Chapter 2, verse 4. This is, this is him before the king. Let's go up to verse 3 of chapter 2. The king is recognizing that Nehemiah, the cupbearer, by the way, the cupbearer uh, was usually a young, a young man, uh, a higher-ranking official, but usually young. So, uh, you know, in that time, you had to be a little older to begin to climb up the ladder. But if you were the cupbearer to the king, that means that you carried serious respect and trust from the institution and from the king himself. And because you're young, that means that you're probably doing the things rightly as you're seeking to move forward. And so uh, Nehemiah finds himself in this wonder- wonderful position. Uh, he's a slave, yes, but wow, he's right next to the king. God's placed him there. And then who shows up in chapter 1? Hanani, his brother. Hanani shows up. Nehemiah has a brother, and Hanani says this, Jerusalem's in shambles. It's really bad, bro. It's really bad. And what does Nehemiah do? He is, he is wrecked with grief to the point where he can't even hold it in as he's working at his job. Uh, he's, he's weeping, and it's obvious that he's grieved, and the king notices. And that's where this prayer comes in chapter 1, uh, that first prayer that we saw. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed. Nehemiah is praying on behalf of the people, of God's people. The people that God loves. And so Nehemiah still, though, finds himself not in Judah, not where God's people are who are suffering, but in the king's court, right next to the king. So how does God work here? Well, God in his mysterious providence placed Nehemiah exactly where he needed to be. And the king said, what's up? What can I do? And Nehemiah shot an arrow prayer right up. That's what Dr. Derek Thomas, y'all know... uh, at first prez, he's got a little book on Ezra. He calls this an arrow prayer. 
it's, uh, it's wonderful. Uh, you see it in 2 4. Uh, let's start with verse 3. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Verse 4 Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? And it goes on in verse 4. So I prayed to the God of heaven. <laughs> it's a quick prayer, right? Think about it. You're in conversation, right? What do you want? Oh, Lord, please, you know, let me say the right thing, right? I mean, it's, a, it's just like that, all right? And what does God do? Well, he works in the heart of the king. Verse 5, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Verse 6, the king said to me with the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? (laughs) What? (laughs) That's crazy. Uh, But this has happened before and it will happen again. God has put uh, the people in place where he needs them to be in the moment that he needs them, that his people might continue on, might be preserved, and that they might flourish We've seen it in Ezra, we've seen it in the Kings and Samuel, we've seen it in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, we've seen it all, right? We've seen it in Ruth, we've seen God over and over with his wonderful and mysterious providence working, and we don't ever see it until we do, and then it's awesome. And so this is one of those points, and so Nehemiah gets money, he gets authority, and he goes, and he rebuilds. There's opposition, but God is working. And so the opposition has no chance. He's already, God, that is, has already been working in the people's hearts. So when Nehemiah gets there and he says, hey, we need to rebuild the wall, and it's going to take y'all. It'd be like if I came to us and I said, we need to build a wall around Centennial. Y'all be like, yeah, right, I'll see y'all tomorrow. I mean, you know, that would be crazy, right? We might not have that heart. But when Nehemiah came, the Lord was already working by his Holy Spirit in his people's hearts. And so when he came, he said, we need to rebuild the wall. And they said, sign me up. Every single one of them. And so there's a list in chapter 3 of all the people. Priests, high-ranking officials, rich people, poor people, children. Everybody showed up. Gold makers, watchmakers, everybody, everybody was there. Wood makers, blacksmiths, whatever. They all came and they started to work. And then when there was more opposition, God preserved Nehemiah. There was a lot of people who didn't like this, but at every turn, God was already working. We see the opposition in chapter 4 gets a little serious, but... Again, Nehemiah with his prayer. Let's look at chapter 4, verse 15. We won't go into it all, but there's opposition. The enemies of God don't want the building of the wall because the building of the wall means that God's city, the city of Zion, where these people had been established for so long, would be back. And they would be their own entity. The enemies of God didn't like that, but chapter 4, verse 15. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan... We all return to the wall, each to his work. Who frustrated their, their plan? God had. Even Nehemiah is, is giving God the glory for his working on their behalf. And so Nehemiah is praying. The people are praying. God is working, not only answering the prayers, but just working. We should never forget that our God works on our behalf, no matter what, because he is our God and we are his people. It's wonderful. God is working. We see that in so many places. 
chapter 5, talking about the changing in the people's hearts. It's one thing for uh, a rich man to do manual labor. It's another thing for a rich man to give up his money. But chapter 5, we even see that. Uh, So uh, as is the case now in our country, so was the case here in Judah, interest levels had spiked because those who had money, well, they would freely give as long as you were willing to pay a price in interest. And so Nehemiah found out, and he found out that they were oppressing the poor because of that, and that it was, that you know, the bring your check here and cash it out, but I'll take 20% off the top, wasn't so good. And so he confronts them in chapter 5. Uh, let's just look at verses 6 through 8, and then verse 12. This is chapter 5, verse 6. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words, talking about the poor people who were being oppressed. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother, which, by the way, is opposed to the the word of the Lord. Uh, That's actually a direct opposition to God's law. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. They were not defending themselves. They were silent. What's happening here? The story continues, but we'll just read verse 12 to see. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as You say, listen, the Lord works mightily. Lord can cause rich people to build a wall. But for the Lord to cause such generosity in his people's hearts, the ante has been upped. The Lord is working already on behalf of the people. He is stirring within them and causing them to realize the folly of their ways that money is nothing. It's like Jesus said, right? Those are just rot away and rust and be gone. There's something more. And these people are beginning to see it. And and it even continues. We see even in chapter 8, the people, God's stirring in their heart, this reality uh, that that the Lord is working. And and it culminates, as it were, in in really in chapter 8 and chapter 9. Let's read chapter 8, verses 1 five through six and nine for you to see this and for us to finish with this point that God is working. All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. They wanted him to read not just the Bible, but Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It would be like if on a Sunday morning one of you said, hey, could you open up to Leviticus and read chapters 1 through 7? And then everyone said, yes, yes. We can hardly even imagine that, right? But these people are right. They're right. The story continues in chapter 8. We see verses 5 through 6. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, literally standing on something. And as he opened it all, the people stood because of their reverence to what was happening. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So they're standing. The word is being read and they're, boom, dropped to the ground. Story continues on, of course, and goes through, but we'll 
finish it in verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. The people heard the word of God, and they mourned and they wept. They wept. Why? Because they were not living their lives in accord with the scriptures. The Lord was working in their hearts. It's a revival. It's literally a revival recorded in scripture. And it looks just like this. But the ministers were faithful. They said, this is not mourning or weeping. This is a cause for rejoicing. And then, of course, they go on and they have a feast of booths, which is something that you find in the scriptures, and they celebrate it. And they realize that God is working. God is stirring within them. How wonderful. And this leads to a reassured faith, which you see in chapter 9, a prayer of confession. But they're confessing their sins in full knowledge of what God is doing for them. And so, as they pray, and by the way, it's a wonderful prayer in chapter 9. Larry, what... The three nines or something, what were you saying? Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9, and Daniel 9 are these wonderful chapters of prayer. I'd never heard of it, but that's very cool. And so this is, this is one of them, right? We've got Nehemiah 9, and it's this intense prayer. And it's, it's this prayer that connects them to the people of God of the past. And it connects them through the exile into post-exile. And they are saying this, God, you are my God. And I know that you will never leave us. And so because of that, we are praying to you, Lord, and we are going to act on this. Not only are we praying, but because of what you have done, because of how you have been working, because of the completion of these things that you have so obviously been a part of, we are going to cut a covenant with you. They are reestablishing a covenant. Now remember, the covenant is super important, not only to the Old Testament, not only to the New Testament, but through the entirety of salvation as we know it, because God cut a covenant with Adam in the garden. He said, hey, do this, and you will live. What was he supposed to do? Well, he was supposed to not eat the fruit of the tree. That's all he had to do, and we would live. But he didn't. He broke the covenant. And so, as we continued on, more covenants began to reveal themselves, but it was really revealing one truth, that God would save his people. The first covenant didn't work, but he was going to send someone else who could fulfill that covenant, a second Adam. Jesus, right? So we see the bow pointed right at God's heart, the rainbow, right? That's what it is. It's a bow and arrow pointed right at God. I'm going to establish this in the skies for you that you might see. What does he do? He cuts the animal in half with Abraham and walks through it, right? The flaming pot, right? Walks through the cut in half animals. I'm establishing a covenant with you. If I break the covenant, God speaking, I'll do like these animals, cut myself in half. The covenant with David, I will establish a king on the throne of David forever. Hold me to it. Covenants continue. And so we see that fulfillment in Jesus, all those things being fulfilled. We see it continue on until in Revelation. And of course you'll remember this because we went through this only a few weeks ago. Revelation, right? That was... Almost a calendar year ago, I suppose. Uh, But when we were going through Revelation, you saw that that tree with the fruit, 
right? The tree of life that had the fruit on it, the knowledge of good and evil. Well, it shows up again in Revelation. The knowledge of good and evil, he took of it. What did God say? Don't eat of the tree of life. You got to get out of the garden. You can't have this tree anymore. What's in Revelation at the very end? Lining the rivers of life, trees of life that we might take and eat because of what Jesus has done for us, fulfilling the covenant so we don't have to be expelled from the garden. We stay in the garden, the new heavens and the new earth. So we find ourselves here within the book of Nehemiah with a reestablishment of the covenant by the people of God post-exile. So they had gone into exile for breaking the law of God, which, by the way, is another covenant. Do these things again and you will live. Can't do them. You're going into exile. That's what I told you. Now they're back. God delivered them once again. And because of God's working on their behalf, because of his preservation, they have been reassured of God's goodness and God's faithfulness. And so because of that, because of God saving them, they then react in holiness towards him setting themselves apart. So they cut a covenant and say, we will obligate ourselves to live a life after you, revealing who you are to others. This then finishes us out. After chapter 10, we see, uh, chapter 9, we see 10, 11, 12, 13. And in that, we see names listed of people who are signing the covenant. We see uh, uh, <laughs> uh, Nehemiah pulling the hair of certain leaders because they're somewhere they're not supposed to be. Further reform is how I prefer to say it. Uh, But we see God's people fulfilling that. We see that prayers are answered. We see that God is working. And we see that this leads to a reassured faith that then because of that leads to action, to holiness of the people. Remember those things. Follow the pathway of prayer. Recognize that God's working not only through prayer, but simply working. And it's so obvious in the book of Nehemiah. And then see the exclamation point in chapter 9, where that reassured faith culminates into holiness. And that's how it finishes. If y'all follow that, if you follow the remember phrase, and you look at that theme, and you look through those verses, Nehemiah opens up in such a wonderful way. And we can see how God is working for his people, which, of course, you know, culminates in Jesus Christ. When the work is done, well done, my good and faithful servant, and we might have true rest. That's what I got. What do y'all have? Questions, concerns, ideas, hopes, dreams? Go ahead, Rick. Yeah, we can't, it's hard to nail down the exact chronology. The the names of the kings get tricky. So, you know, you have, for instance, Ahasuerus, you know, which Artaxerxes is he? Because there's an Artaxerxes the first, an Artaxerxes the second, and an Artaxerxes the third. There's also two Dariuses, Dariuses, the first and the second. There's also two Xerxes. We've got the first, the first Artaxerxes here. No, excuse me, the first Xerxes here in chapter 1, if you go back, uh, he's before the king. Uh, he, that's his Greek word. The Greek name is Xerxes. A lot of people know Xerxes for um, uh, his attempt to take over Greece. 
It didn't work. It was like a movie, I think, that was made about it recently. It was kind of popular or something. But uh, maybe by recently, I mean when I was in high school, which maybe isn't as recent as it used to be. Well, maybe. That, that's, Esther doesn't. We'll, we'll cover this again when we get to Esther. You know, Esther doesn't necessarily speak as definitively to the timeline as, say, Ezra and Nehemiah do. Uh, you know, Ezra was written... Oh, excuse me, Esther. Uh, if I was saying Ezra, I meant to be saying Esther. But you know, Esther, uh, it's a literary writing that's not focused almost at all on the chronology. It's, it's focused more on presenting a very obvious point of God working even when God maybe wasn't there. I'm using quotes for those who are listening online. Yeah, you'll... You can, you, can, you can hope to find out, but you will never definitively know from what we have in Scripture. Uh, it, it, Esther just doesn't give us enough. You have that king's name, right? You have Ahasuerus, and it's, it's used there, but you know, where we place him and, and who we think he is, the, the, the names of kings, particularly Persian kings, gets very convoluted because they're named the same names, and sometimes they're called the names of their father. Uh, You'll see that, actually. Sometimes there's an overlap between Darius I and and his son, and then Cyrus. You know, who who are we talking about? Who did what and when? Uh, And and those those names begin to really overlap uh, just by virtue of, you know, the authority of the monarchies of the time in, in that culture. Yeah. Yeah. To Judah. You talking about you talking about the Jews that were in exile? Yeah. There, there were some that were. Uh, I mean, certainly, but you know, they're they're not in their land. So the people who chose to stay. Uh, would not be, say, as blessed by the Lord. I mean, you know, comfort, speaking about worldly comfort, you know, there would be some Jews who chose to stay, you know, kind of creating what we would call in the New Testament period the diaspora. It's kind of where this is beginning to reveal itself, these Jews who are staying. You know, Nehemiah's here. He's not, you know, he's not in Judah. His brother comes from Judah to tell him about the ruins of Jerusalem. Yeah, uh, I mean, you know, the, the, the choice to go and the choice to stay, uh, you know, is not necessarily spoken as strongly to in Scripture. I think the reality is that there was an initial group, what I would call a vanguard of people who were going, and then I, I would assume that the hope would be that Hananese, you know, the Hananese of the world would go back and talk to their brothers, and instead of saying, hey, Jerusalem's in shambles, say, man, it's like it was. You need to come back. Our people have gathered once again. The exile is over, brother. You know, uh, but, but that's not what we get in this first chapter. We get something different, and we see Nehemiah's reaction, uh, of course, and we see God working and where he, he was stationed. You know, he didn't leave. I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't with the vanguard. You know, he, he was still there as a cupbearer to the king, uh, so he was fairly established, uh, a, a fairly high-ranking young man within the governmental body there.
So there were certainly those who would stay. As you pointed out, Nehemiah and Ezra were contemporaries. Are there any prophets yeah. that overlap? Yeah. Uh, so the question for those listening was, are there any are there any prophets that overlap with Ezra and Nehemiah? Uh, Haggai and Zechariah, uh, you know that we get that wonderful picture in, uh, in Zechariah of, of Joshua, of Yeshua, the high priest, in dirty clothes uh, before the accuser, right? The angel says, oh no, take those clothes off and put on something clean. We get the plumb line of this judgment in Zechariah. Haggai is a little shorter, but we still, you know, these guys are preaching about the rebuilding of the temple. And so they're a little bit before Nehemiah's time but certainly would have been at the forefront of almost all of these things. You know, that they would have been on the minds of the people as they proclaimed God's word. Were they in Judea or would they have been in Yeah, they were looking at the temple, saying, what in the world are y'all doing? Because people were building mansions for themselves. <laughs> and they're like, what are you doing? You know, you came here to do something particular, and you're, you're going after your own greed again, you know. And so uh, they were certainly holding fast to the the word of the Lord, seeking to help them to stay on that narrow path. Yeah. Any other questions? I thought of one while we were talking about Nehemiah. You know, a lot of times we get these books with Nehemiah. I don't know if y'all are familiar with them. The leadership books. Like, you know, every, every Bible study I've ever heard on Nehemiah has to do with men leading or something like that. Uh, and I'm not going to tell you to disregard them. But I would give you a strong encouragement to be wary of them. Because uh, when we begin to look at the Bible like that, we begin to miss out on the primary point, which is God is working for the people. You know, Nehemiah is not the main character of this story. God is working through Nehemiah. God is the main character of the story. There are certain leadership qualities perhaps to be seen there. The zealousness of Nehemiah would get you fired in almost every institution in America, though, because he pulled out the hair of an employee. Uh, you know, that's pretty harsh. And so we've got to be careful to make these kind of leaps over. Uh, it, it doesn't seem as obvious with Nehemiah, but uh, a very obvious illustration is like David and Goliath. You know, we love to say, be courageous like David, but... But that's not the point. Uh, David's courage was revealing God working on their behalf. And so that's just a a moment, I think, for us as you maybe see some more popular books written about Nehemiah the leader or Nehemiah the, you know, the governor, the the, the political, uh, how to operate within the politics of the day, a Nehemiah story or something like that. These things crop up, I think, every couple years. And so I would just encourage you to be wary of those things as you see them use them they might have excellent stuff in them but just remember that nehemiah is not about nehemiah it's about god working for his people that's very important for us to remember in all of scripture Uh, but it's easy in some instances like nehemiah for us to lose it especially any other questions we have just a couple more minutes Right. That's right. Yeah. 
certainly. That he was moved so much to action uh, yeah. to be able to take time off to go there. Yeah. Yeah, that observation that, uh, I mean, you know, for, for Nehemiah, this is, a, this is a perfect point about how God is working always, right? So, so Nehemiah is praying, but what leads you to prayer? <laughs> why, why do you pray in the first place? You know, as God's working, is revealing that he's a listening God, that he is a God who works. But, but Nehemiah is a nobody, you know, and God is, is preserving him in a place where no preservation should be taking place. This is, uh, you know, where they are, Susha, the capital, Susa, we see uh, here in the scriptures. It, it's not a good place to be a believer. Uh, it's, it's not somewhere where, you know, there's a strong encouragement to continue on uh, to, to be particular with your own God or something like that. Uh, it would have been rampant with everything that you would think would be happening in, you know, to quote, the big city. Uh, lots of vices, uh, lots of ways to spend your money that were not conducive to the holy life. Uh, not to mention the idols and the false religions and all of these things that would crop up. And so, you're right, for, for God to preserve Nehemiah in the first place is already evidence of his greatness and magnitude of work on our behalf. Not to mention everything else that then spawned from him, right? As he moves forward, the walls rebuilt. You know, of course, you see the Lord working in other people's hearts. This multiplication, boom, the people of God are back, you know. Uh, wow, it's impressive. Yeah. And praise God for that. And these prayers that, that were listed, in, uh, you can see how um, these prayers are, are answered to what Solomon had the dedication of the temple yeah. and how he was making these blessings and curses and stuff. That's right. And how they brought that back to God's mind. That's right. And, and you know, that, that reminder, you know, that's that connection that they had. And I have, I've, have written that there in the connection section of our handy-dandy uh, handout. You know, uh, that prayer is very particular because these post-exile people of God are saying... We are the people of God, just like Abraham's children. Uh, you know, they're, they're hearkening back to the history of God, and they're saying, we are here. We acknowledge that you have preserved us just as, as you have preserved your people before. And so, yes, that, I mean, you know, for them to remind God of the things that, that, that Solomon was uh, praying, you know, they, they remind God of his working for his people. They remind God of their own sins and their need for preservation. All of these things connect them kind of with continuity uh, to the rest of the people pre-exile. Um, very important just for us to see as we enter in. You know, we, we should do that. that. That's how we pray. Lord, thank you for the preserving of our people. You know, these are our people. This is our story. It's pretty cool. I think it's kind of hard to leave the study of Nehemiah, knowing that we're going into Esther, and we're studying Esther in Sunday school yeah. right now without that word destiny popping up somewhere in the conversation mm -hmm. to sort of tag onto your first point. Um, you know, Nehemiah was in a position where you wouldn't think he would have had such a, uh, an awakening, if you will. So at what point, you know, was it destiny? Was it his destiny? Did God put him there at such a time as this? 
Esther. Oh, yes. Yes, and I, I, you know, for, for God to place, you know, God working in our lives, it's easy for us to see when we read it on the pages, right? Nehemiah, oh, it's obvious. He's cupbearer to the king. God placed him there. Esther, you know, oh, she better do that even as they're fasting. She better go in and stand her ground for the faith. You know, but the Lord, as we remind ourselves, is working just like that, just as powerfully in our lives. And when we begin to recognize that our sovereign God the God who was in control, loved us from before we were even a thought and twinkle in our mother's eyes, even before the world existed, God knew that we were his people. Because of that, as we march through this life, we should have what I have written here, a reassured faith that then lends itself to holiness. It's not holiness first. It never is. Because of what God has done and is doing for us, just like he did for Nehemiah, just like Esther, too. A strong, if not stronger even, than Nehemiah's position. Uh, you know, because of this reassurance of where we are and where we stand because of Jesus, now we can move forward confidently in a holiness that we desire to do rather than something we, we feel like uh, we're required to do to save ourselves. God has saved us. Look at him work. It's incredible. Maybe we'll end on that. If you have more questions, you can come up and ask. Let's pray real quick. Heavenly Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for your scripture and for the revelation that we see here. Uh, Even, Father, for Jesus Christ, for Jesus said that all of the scriptures are about him. Even, Lord, going so far as to reveal himself as the word. And so, Lord, as we look here, we thank you that you are working, that you are the one who is continuing to work. And, Father, Son and Holy Ghost, Lord, you reveal yourself as the Savior of us. And so, Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for that salvation that we see here, the book of Nehemiah. And, Lord, we thank you for your preservation of your people, of which we are. God, keep us now until we might see one another again. In Jesus' name, amen.